girls can become glamour girls like you. Oh, yes, they can, Luella. Believe me, if starting with nothing the way I did, I've become the kind of, well, uh, assembly job that's tagged glamour, then any girl can do it. Maybe you'd better explain what you think glamour is, John. In my opinion, it's, it's discipline. Discipline and applied art. I think it's an inner glow, too, don't you, John? Mm-hmm. You're quite right. But that inner glow comes from discipline, too. The sheer force of not letting yourself be sloppy or lazy, of learning and growing. I gather the applied art is all the tricks of a parent. Mm, oh, honey, every trick in the book. Makeup and hairdos and posture and diction and clothes and... Well, maybe I should say the works. <laughs> maybe you should say the sly old feminine lot. Miss Parsons, you are very, very sharp. But that merely proves my point. I say to the girls just starting out, if you have the capacity to be a career woman, you can be a careerist and a woman, too. I want to say I think it's wrong, however, if any woman neglects her children or her home for her work. But if you start working early enough, you'll learn how to have all three, and that way your life will be always exciting. You know, Luella, I believe a career woman has earned the right to be an idealist in love. Don't you agree with that? Yes, Joan, I do. I agree with you completely. And all my thanks for being here tonight. Luella, you know it was a privilege. Thank you so much, and goodbye now. Goodbye, Joan, and I can't wait to see your new picture, Daisy Canyon. You're listening to episode 85 of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. In 1971, Elizabeth Jane Way published her first book of feminist politics, Man's World, Woman's Place, a study of social mythology. She defined power as the ability not to have to please. Had she this idea already in mind in 1945 when she wrote her second novel, Daisy Kenyon? What makes Joan Crawford's part a standout in Otto Preminger's version for the screen is how little she needs a man or to please one. Daisy has a successful career as an artist illustrating fashion ads for magazines. She has her own artist loft in the village. She can lose herself in work, devote herself and her time to what she loves doing without having to worry about pleasing a man. She doesn't have to put anyone else first. She's living the bachelor gal's dream. Daisy is self-sufficient. Men are amusing diversions when she wants them, and when she doesn't, she has the luxury of immersing herself in work. Daisy Kenyon is a glorious woman's picture. The heroine doesn't have to settle for scraps. She doesn't have to reform the man or save him. And the picture loads the emotional burden on the shoulders of men. They make reckless declarations of an undying love for Joan Crawford. Instead of remote, tight-lipped men who are soured by the war, which you can find a dime a dozen in film noir, the men in Daisy's life trip over themselves to pledge their love. Joan's character has Dan O'Mara in one corner, a corporate attorney who's married with two daughters, played by Dana Andrews. In the other corner is Peter Lapham, a GI who designs sailboats, who's also a widower, played by Henry Fonda. Joan Crawford knew how to juggle two men on screen the way Fred Astaire knew step ball change, or Humphrey Bogart knew how to dangle a cigarette on his bottom lip. 
done so many times before a camera, they knew it bone deep, a second nature. Love triangles were Joan's bread and butter for decades. Often, though, Joan's choices between two men were a foregone, foregone conclusion. We know Otto Kruger will never hold her once Clark Gable enters the picture and chained, just as we know the same for Bob Montgomery and forsaking all others once he jilts her at the altar and Gable's there to pick up the pieces. As Sam Goldwyn once observed, when Montgomery appears on screen, you know he has balls, but when Gable appears, you can hear them clanking together. Does anyone think Joan will wind up with Jean Raymond and Sadie McKee? Or Bob Young and the Bride Wore Red? One of the best elements in Daisy Kenyon is how long Otto Preminger keeps the outcome of Joan's three-cornered love affair uncertain. We're in adult territory here with a torrid love affair, broken vows, and the way desire complicates ethical choices. No one's really a saint here. But we get an honest appraisal of romantic entanglements. It's a wonder that it escaped unscathed by the scolds and the production code administration. Otto Preminger made it his life's mission to subvert, work around, and eventually overthrow the authority of the censors. Joe Breen hated adultery on screen and made it a point to punish anyone who transgressed the rules around marital vows and sex outside marriage. In his moral compass, Daisy and women like her should be vilified or punished rather than receive a happy ending at the fade-out. Preminger could not be as frank as Elizabeth Janeway's novel, where both Dan and Peter at one time or another are groping Daisy's breasts, or that Dan has a key to her apartment, or Peter moves in for a few weeks of hot sex and then informs Daisy that they just can't go on that way, that he, she needs to make an honest man of him. I'm drawn to what the film does with the telephone in Daisy's bedroom. It's a streamlined handheld model that you can tuck under your chin. For a woman who works from home, it's interesting that the telephone isn't by her drafting table or in the kitchen. Instead, it's placed on the bedside table for intimate conversations. It isn't for business, it's for pleasure. The phone's location is a subtle way to communicate that Daisy is sexually active, with an outside line that leads to steamy encounters. In the first part of the film, Joan's character can be summarized by the comment Mary Angelus makes when she eats Daisy's food. You cook like you paint, honey, fast, colorful, and glib. That's Daisy's problem. She's too glib. She spent so many years in the back street of some man's life that she's learned to stick a label on men, put them in a category, and move on. She learned it from a master, the ruthless tycoon, Dan O'Mara. Joan contends with two different men who create a storm in her life equal to the poem that Peter had written to his wife the night she died. What happens to a hurricane that has no place to go? In Otto Preminger's picture, matters of the heart push Joan out of her comfort zone or her safety zone, where she can't be in control or hide behind sarcasm. The second part of the film is how Joan changes while she rides out the romantic storm. Initially, it looks like Peter hasn't a chance. The first scene introduces Dan O'Mara, played by Dana Andrews, as an alpha male. 
He prowls around Daisy's flat like he owns the joint, pours coffee while he breaks their plans for the third time, and acts indulgently with Daisy's model, Mary Angelus. Dan does this maddening thing where he pretends he doesn't notice how cross Daisy is. He later does the same thing with his wife and daughters. On the surface, it looks like he's wisely chosen to avoid drama, but really it's a passive-aggressive refusal to validate someone else's feelings. Viewers can tell Daisy's sore because she fusses over the drinks tray, rearranging the bottles, and then she plumps up seat cushions. She needs to keep her hands busy so she doesn't smack him in the face. When Daisy says, I think I'm through to Dan, he pulls out of his bag of lawyer tricks and paints the artist into a rhetorical corner. He'll leave and never return if she tells him to. His smooth talk belittles Daisy's anger that he's broken plans three times in a row. Dan forces an ultimatum and turns everything around until Daisy's teary-eyed and admits she's still in love with him. Dan O'Mara is used to being in control. He's a master of manipulation, which is made clear from the moment he appears. Then Henry Fonder's Peter Lapham arrives for a date. Dan can't resist playing games with him, too, to mark his territory over Daisy. He makes ungallant quips about having held her up and patronizes the soldier by saying he'll send the taxi back when he's through with it as though there were some parallel between Daisy and a yellow checker ride. Warily, Peter enters the flat. He's reserved. Joan orders him to make a drink for himself. Then she disappears to change one dress for another that's nearly identical, save for an exchange of a white starch collar and cuffs for lace over a black frock. Daisy is a woman who pays attention to detail, White starch cuffs are for day and lace is for night. In her flat over a cocktail, she asks a question to find out if he's married, then interrupts him after he mentions his wife. Hey, what is it with you guys? Don't any of you go back to the wives you left when you went to war? Daisy pegs him for another romantic escape artist who looks for the exit once any demands are made of him. But Peter Lapham resists the category. Henry Fonda matches Joan Crawford's knack for underplay when he tosses a line walking out the door with his back to the camera. As they head out for the taxi Dan has sent back, Daisy says with an arched eyebrow, we were talking about your wife. Without stopping, Fonda replies, you were yes, she's dead. Fonda throws away the line like cellophane on a pack of cigarettes. This is the first time he catches Daisy off guard and makes her reconsider her opinion of him. It won't be the last. In the store club, while they're pressed into a corner waiting for a table, Peter babbles on and says he wants to kiss her neck. Daisy isn't used to public displays of affection because she's been with Mary Dan for so long and certainly not in a high-profile spot like the store club. Dan swans in Mr. Important, Mr. Big Shot. He greets the maitre d' as Honey Bunch and then casually greets Daisy. 
Joan tries to match his breezy tone, but she looks at Dan with his family, his wife Lucille and his daughter Rosamond, like someone walked across her grave, reduced to a mere acquaintance by the man she's carried on with for eight years. She's in pain, and as Joan's face falls, I can see the forlorn, unloved girl who toiled at her mother's laundry counter as she had in real life. Henry Fonda's Peter sees it too. He clocks nothing else but Joan trying to pick her face off the floor. He sees her. Ruth Warwick, who plays Lucille, recalled that during production, Joan was polite to the men, as you would be to a maid. Joan has that quality at the scene in front of her building very early at 3 a.m. on Saturday morning at the end of their first date. Daisy will let him ring her up and take her to a ball game on Sunday. She tells him that she has to work this day, but really he can take her out on Sunday. She bestows a favor on an underling. She's the career girl trying to stay in control and take charge, but Peter flips the script. He doesn't try for a kiss or thank her for a lovely evening and leave. Instead, Peter says, I love you and then turns and walks away. He's shaken her out of her comfort zone. On Sunday, Peter stands her up for the ball game. Instead of moping that evening, Daisy goes to the cinema with Mary Angelus. Peter rings at the last minute and she blows him off. The marquee for the cinema announces a double bill of Mr. Lucky with Cary Grant and the Fritz Lang noir, The Woman in the Window. Peter skulks around and follows the two women. He waits across the street in a restaurant. Then he knocks on Daisy's door as she's getting ready for bed. This scene is a knockout. When Joan opens the door, Fonda looks so pleased with himself standing there. He knows she didn't really have other plans with a group of people, as she told him on the phone. She played a game after he played a game. Joan isn't wearing a dress like she would normally wear for a date. In fact, her wardrobe by Charles Lemaire for the scene looks as though it were chosen to fortify her next to a man in uniform. Joan wears a tailored jacket with padded shoulders and a military cut that was popular during the war. Underneath the cropped jacket is a white waistcoat embellished with large brass buttons. To finish the look, Joan has a polka dot scarf tucked under her throat that snakes down to tie at her waist like a military sash. All she needs is a saber to finish the look. When Henry Fonda's Peter sits down to share his story about his dead wife, how she died in a car wreck, then he tells her that he died in it too, that he's been numb ever since, and Daisy interrupts him. She knows this story. And she knows he's probably told it before. She's heard its chapters and verse. It's become familiar to her what men say about themselves, just variations on pickup lines. My wife left me, or my wife won't sleep with me, or my wife destroyed my self-confidence, or I can't trust women anymore after what she did, or my wife won't give me a divorce. Daisy has heard them all. Daisy Kenyon refers to the shower of lies men tell as case histories. 
She tells Peter he sounds like a case history, that she believes the facts but not the melodrama. If everything really went dead for him, he wouldn't know it. When Peter objects, she stands her ground. Have your tragedy. Have your melodrama. She waves him off. He's the emotional hysteric, not Daisy. Now she looks smug and superior. Peter asks, what about Daisy? He wants to know. She ducks the accusation. Her life isn't interesting. There's no melodrama in her life. Peter lowers the boom. Daisy's in love with a ruthless tycoon. Isn't that melodrama? Daisy tries to keep the walls up and keep herself safe, protected from him. But Peter Fonda tears them down with reckless emotional declarations of love. He utters one of my favorite romantic lines. He declares the world's dead and everybody in it's dead but you. Sure, it may be a line, but it's a hell of a good one. Fresh enough to stop a dame in her tracks. Peter admits that he waited for at the restaurant, and then he tells Daisy that his problems will go away after they're married. Is he letting go of the games by finally putting his cards on the table? Unlike Dan, Peter is very clear about what he wants from Daisy, and he doesn't have any escape, escape routes like Dan does with that penthouse on Park Avenue. Their marriage is a foregone conclusion as far as Peter's concerned. He embraces Daisy. What nice ears she has, he whispers. While he's holding her, Daisy struggles with her feelings. You can see Joan trembles with desire. The wave of it crashes over her. She shudders and pulls away from him, her brain telling her not to let it happen yet. Just like that, she's talking about baseball again, as though she were a man thinking about sports to get her mind off sex. Joan steps away from him, becomes imperious again, and suggests he take her to that ball game on Wednesday night. Fonda vows that if he doesn't show up, he won't bother trying again. In the moment that she trembled against him, wanting him, the die was cast. Peter Lapham wins her, not just by flipping the script, and be, but by being honest and having such passion for Daisy and inspiring at her in return. Dan goes away for a business trip for 18 days. When he returns, Daisy's married to Peter and packing up her flat. After World War II, when the men returned from battle and were depicted on screen, they were most often scarred, bitter, cynical, world-weary. Nearly every lad in film noir was a jaded husk, convinced that every dame was up to no good. They had been two-timing him, as Alan Ladd discovers when his wife, played by Doris Dowling in The Blue Dahlia from 1946, reappears. While he was risking his neck fighting for the American way of life, she was holding daytime cocktail parties with another man in their marital bed. But there is an, an alternative to the G.I. Joe paranoid vision of women. Henry Fonda, Fonda gives us another interpretation of what it means to be a man. As Peter Lapham, after his wartime service, he's done with a macho grandstanding. He gives viewers another way to understand what it means to be a man. Instead of a steel-jawed stoic, Fonda has opened up the floodgates on his feelings. 
instead of nihilism or joining his fellow comrades in the Woman Haters Club. Peter Fonda latches on to the only lifeline he can see, love, love with Joan Crawford. In the Cape House, after they're married, he wakes up one night soaked in sweat, and he's ashamed that Daisy learns she married the son of Dracula. His trauma has encroached upon their wedded bliss, and he's mortified. Daisy soothes Dan. She got, soothes Peter, rather. She got Dan out of her system. She worked hard to do it. Now it's Peter's turn to exercise the ghost of Susie his ex-wife, or dead wife. Joan isn't going to banish the dead man's wife and make her go away. Grown-ups take care of what haunts them from their past. Fonda makes extravagant confessions about his feelings and plants the poem he wrote to his dead wife in the common property drawer. He doesn't force himself on Daisy. He waits for her to make up her own mind, to come to her own feelings in her own time. He's impulsive, but he's also patient, and he waits for her. His passion is naked and honest, and it isn't covered up by that macho grandstanding and cliches, the cheap patter like baby and honey bunch. I used to think that post-war masculinity shifted with Montgomery Clift as the new type of man, but now I realize that Henry Fonda quietly stood in immaculate chinos and gave viewers a man who doesn't need to stay gripped in anger, that he can feel something more. He whispers, let it grow, instead of telling her how she should feel. In the other corner of this romantic triangle is Dana Andrews. He could have performed the part of Dan in his sleep. It's easy to see why Daisy carried on with him for eight years. He's the kind of man who parts a room like Moses. He walks into the stork club and gets a table when they're packed to the rafters. He can hold a taxi when you're not supposed to. His office is a wood-paneled fortress behind three sets of doors with a woman, a woman on the desk out front to guard access. Dan tells people how they're feeling and what they really mean. Everyone is honey bunch, baby, or pet, no matter who they are. He's glib, brawny, and important. But eight years is a long time to live in the backstreet of some man's life. Can she really love a cheater, a man who lavishes affection on his preteen daughter that should go to his wife, or a man who teaches his daughters to expect men to treat them like dirt? Dan opens up about as much as a pinch on the knot of his necktie. He lets out just a tiny bit of emotional breathing room. For the eight years they've been together, Dan hasn't expressed an honest feeling that didn't have something to do with his zipper. Dan's home life is riddled with dysfunction and abuse of which he's the source. He's one of those men who treats a young daughter as his wife in training. Who takes a 13-year-old girl to the store club? Dan wants to be noble all of a sudden when he fears that he might lose Daisy. He accepts an unpopular case and waives the fee for a Nisai veteran who was awarded the Purple Heart for bravery in wartime service and then had his farm confiscated. Dan tells Daisy that he took the case for her because it would make her love him. Dan doesn't like losing, whether it's Daisy or the court case he took just to impress her. 
When he waltzes into Daisy's flat after she's married, Peter, feeling sorry for himself, he wants to pick up their drama where he left it. But Joan finally laces into him. What makes him think he was so special? People get licked every day, she tells him. And then to reassert his dominance, he attacks her. The monster that he is finally is unveiled. Suddenly, Daisy has a husband and a lover fighting over her. She does the sensible thing and retreats to the cottage on the Cape where she can lose herself in work. They won't leave her alone for a minute. When Joan jumps in the car and races through the woods trying to outrun two men who make demands, I thought about how she ended the affair she had with the Hollywood lawyer Greg Bowser. After a party honoring Louis B. Mayer in 1948, Joan was behind the wheel when she asked Greg Darling if he could check the left rear tire, which didn't seem right. When he obliged, Joan floored it and sped away, leaving him miles from home. Daisy Kenyon should have done the same with Dan and Peter, instead of having a crack up in the snow. Although I am grateful for the image of glamorous Joan walking two miles in a big fur and ankle strap shoes. Leon Shamroy photographed the picture with a strategic minimalist lighting for the scene set in Daisy's loft. That was his style. It wasn't because of Joan's age. Leon Shamroy explained his technique he had developed in Fox Studio. First, he noted that God was a great photographer because he only had one light. Shamroy emphasized the economy of light he applied. In an interview, he said every light has to mean something, be fully justified, like words in a sentence. Shamroy's lighting is poetry, just like Henry Fonda when he murmurs to Daisy, let it grow, let it grow, let it grow. Daisy Kenyon is a thinking woman's romance. Stripped of idealism or sentiment, it begins with a cynical worldview. Parents are abusive. Marriage vows are broken. Men play games like not calling when they say they will. But instead of jaded resolution, the picture resolves that we can find hope and love despite the messy baggage and missteps. Love is still possible. I didn't even mind that Henry Fonda has the last word. When he and Joan hoist shots of whiskey like two old war buddies rather than flutes of champagne that we usually see with lovers on screen, he lays his cards on the table again. His indifference was feigned. He hung back. He let Daisy decide whether or not to run away with Dan or to stay with him. He tells her, when it comes to modern combat tactics, you, you're both babies compared to me. By 1947, Otto Preminger had developed a reputation in Hollywood for being fractious on set for using bully tactics. When his brother Ingo arrived and became an agent, he joked that around the film colony, he was known as the nice Preminger. Otto's ex-wife Marion consented to a divorce in 1949, but kept using his name because she knew it inspired a certain degree of fear and respect in Hollywood. Hollywood history notes that Preminger tormented Linda Darnell through two pictures, Forever Amber and Fallen Angel. For the second film, he seemed to act on the dictates of Howard Hughes, who was in the middle of a messy breakup with Darnell and wanted the, wanted the director to give her a rough time. 
Alice Faye thought that Preminger was abrasive, but she gave him what he wanted in Fallen Angel. When she quit making pictures after she finished Fallen Angel, it wasn't because of Preminger, but because of Daryl Zanuck, who had cut many of her key scenes out of the picture. Alice Faye felt tricked. Zanuck had lured her back to do the film, and then she'd given her all in a straight dramatic role to reinvent herself on screen. But he wanted to punish her, and he ruined the whole picture so that her character had no interior life or credible development. On her last day on the set of Fallen Angel, she took the time to write a note to Zanuck that was so blue she refused to ever divulge its contents. She took it to her grave. Preminger noted that the studio boss, Daryl Zanuck, had no empathy for women in film. He didn't care about their stories on screen. It wasn't that he didn't get on with women and he didn't have a good marriage, but women's stories held no interest for him. Preminger had an interest in women's stories, and you can see it here by how well Daisy's story is told. Other women have sung Preminger's praises. Tallulah Bankhead adored him and cited his exquisite charm and manners. He was a popular escort with stars around town, and Joan Crawford got on very well with him. I have to admit, I find his memoir really delightful. I had expected the voice of a tyrant like you find with Joseph von Sternberg, but Preminger's reflections are self-effacing, full of humor and warmth. And I'm also won over to Preminger by the way his son Eric talked about him in his memoir. Eric was the love child with Gypsy Rose Lee and um, Otto Preminger had. He talks about meeting his father for the first time, and it's just really moving. No one reported any rows or trouble on the set of Daisy Kenyon. Dana Andrews didn't really want to do the picture, but he gave in and didn't mess around. Henry Fonda probably wasn't thrilled to be doing another woman's picture because he did so many in the 1930s, but he wanted to work with Preminger, and he respected Joan's work ethic. Ruth Warwick, who plays Lucille, recalled that the cast and crew wondered how well the star and director would get on because she felt they both had a a reputation for being demanding. Warwick believed that Preminger sensed he had met his match with Joan. He was courtly and polite with an and exhibited overly formal manners on set. She was a star for a long time when he was just a protege of Max Reinhardt's, after all. Joan Crawford was as obsessive and dedicated as he was, and Preminger respected that. Warwick complained about the 58-degree temperature that the set was kept to at Joan Crawford's request. There's an old story that has gone around that I would normally hesitate to share if it weren't tied to a mogul's name. Dory Sherry recalled that Joan went to wardrobe in Fox and had a bejeweled jockstrap made full of sequins and fake gems and presented it to Henry Fonda. Supposedly, it took Fonda a moment to realize what it was. Joan later surprised Fonda by asking him to model it for her later. I share the story because despite Fonda's claim that he was Mr. Bashful, not a ladies' man and a bad kisser on screen, he was known to be a lady killer of sorts. 
Also, I'm sharing it because Dory Sherry held a firm commitment to important message pictures, but he loved a good piece of gossip just like anybody else in Hollywood. Dory and Joan were friends, and I'm sure she told it to him over dinner one night. Preminger noted that after the production wrapped, Joan gave him a pair of gold cufflinks. I've told you this story before. Preminger recalled being at a Hollywood party once where four other directors wore the same gold cufflinks. The men had all received them from Joan. I love the idea that she marked her conquests. Years after she did the picture, or he did the picture, Preminger claimed to have no memory of it, that it was just some studio assignment he was compelled to do. I sense this was because it was a classic woman's picture, and he wished to downplay it, his, its place in his screen credits. In the 1970s, when so many film histories were recorded, it was the norm... It was the norm to be dismissive, if not patronizing, towards the mid-century melodramas as weepies or sudsy sentimental affairs. Charles Lemaire did the costumes for Daisy Kenyon. His designs cleaved to the career woman ensembles of the wartime era, with structured tailoring for Joan's wardrobe. Lemaire began in Fox Studios as an executive, rather than as someone's assistant, in the wardrobe department. He was given his position in the old-fashioned way, talent combined with nepotism. Not that he wasn't qualified for the role. He designed for shows in vaudeville and Broadway for years. He was behind hundreds of showgirls in the Ziegfeld Follies and George White scandals. William Getz of Fox had a problem that Lemaire was willing to help solve. Harry Getz wanted to leave his wife Bibi for another woman. Bibi worried that she would lose her social standing in the film colony without a husband to co-host her parties, and initially refused to grant a divorce. After negotiations, Bibi agreed to, to divorce her husband if they found an acceptable second husband. The Getz brothers offered the job to Charles Lemaire, who stepped into two new roles in Fox Studio. Lemaire put the wheels in motion for the Academy recognition for costume design. In 1946, the year before he created the wardrobe for Daisy Kenyon, he attended the Academy Awards more as an obligation to the studio through his executive role. At the end of the ceremony, he complained to director Mervyn Leroy about the lack of Oscar honors for costume. Mervyn tried to duck his objections by arguing that they didn't need any more categories. Lemaire persisted. Without costumes, there would be no motion pictures. Leroy ended the conversation by saying he couldn't discuss it with anyone who wasn't a member of the Academy. The next day, Lemaire applied to join the Academy, and then he began a letter-writing campaign. He appealed to luminaries in the film colony to write testimonials about the importance of costume. In one day, he received 20 letters. Soon, he had nearly 200. Starting in 1948, the Academy Awards included an Oscar for Best Costume, thanks to Charles Lemaire. Finally, let me close with a brief story about a Hollywood mystery. David Hertz, who adapted Elizabeth Janeway's novel to the screen, wrote some of my favorite woman's pictures, such as History is Made at Night, The Devil is a Woman, Woman Chases Man, I Met My Love Again, and Three Loves Have Nancy. 
Joseph L. Mankiewicz credited, credited David Hertz with much of the script for Three Comrades. He called him a brilliant, sensitive American poet. Hertz started out as a playwright before he moved to the film colony. Once established as a screenwriter, he taught screenwriting at the League of American Writers School along with Paul Jericho and Donald Ogden Stewart. After his wartime service, Hertz returned to find his wife involved with another man. She didn't want to leave the other man and asked Hertz for a divorce. Experiencing a crisis, Hertz sought the help of Phil Cohen, an analyst who was popular with writers in Hollywood. Cohen had a reputation for successfully treating writer's block and for helping writers overcome their fear of public speaking. He was particularly admired by women writers in Hollywood, such as Sylvia Richards, Isabel Leonard, and Dorothy Cumminger. Pauline Finn, married to Aubrey Finn, who was the longtime friend and attorney to Dalton Trumbo, recalled that David Hertz looked to Phil Cohen as a kind of a mentor or a father figure while he was under his care. Cohen was an aviator, so Hertz took up flying as a hobby. Pauline said David flew to be more like Phil. She noted that David told her he'd gotten into trouble on one solo flight, that he became really nauseous and sick to his stomach. One night in 1948, David took a solo flight over the ocean and he never returned. An all-night vigil was held at fellow screenwriter Paul Jericho's house. Some said it was suicide. Others said an accident. David Hertz was only 43 years old. Phil Cohen was one of the shadiest characters in a town full of them. He was at one time highly connected in the Communist Party in Hollywood. He received referrals from the party, but during the HUAC hearings, at least a dozen of his patients reversed their position and became friendly witnesses. Cohen was this Bengali figure who used his power of persuasion to convince those called to testify that if they refused and held steadfast to their principles, they were operating under a death drive and committing career suicide. Many people in Hollywood considered Phil Cohen to be a double agent, colluding with the FBI, violating his professional ethics by turning confidential information over to the G-men. Abe Polonsky argued that Phil Cohen turned his patients into stool pigeons. Was David Hurt still grieving the end of his marriage? Did he fear the blacklist? Did Cohen try and make him an informer? It's a mystery. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Daisy Kenyon by Elizabeth Janeway, published in 1945. Conversations with Joan Crawford by Roy Newquist, published in 1981. Joan Crawford, a biography by Bob Thomas from 1978. Preminger, an autobiography by Otto Preminger from 1977. Otto Preminger, The Man Who Would Be King by Foster Hirsch from 2010. Fonda, My Life by Henry Fonda and Howard Tetchman, published in 1981. Naming Names by Victor S. Navasky from 2003. Hollywood Cameraman by Charles Higgum from 1970. 
Creating the Illusion, a Fashionable History of Hollywood Costume Designers by Jay Jorgensen and Donald L. Scoggins, published in 2015. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not help a dame out and share a nice comment on iTunes? Join me next time for episode 86, when I talk about the Valley of the Dolls from 1967. Thanks very much.